welcome. This is Robin Sills from Trinity Health of New England, St. Mary's Hospital. Welcome to Medically Speaking. And we are medically speaking um, again on the topic um, that we've been doing for most of the month. And we're really focusing on something that we're saying, don't take a turn for the worse. And we've been having, we've had a primary care physician on. um, And also we've had surgeons on from our hospital out in Springfield from Mercy Hospital. Um, And now tonight we are going to have a physician on from the Greater Hartford Market. And really what we're focusing on and don't take a turn for the worse is really just not ignoring those signs and symptoms, doing the things that make sense, being proactive, getting your screenings done, knowing your body, understanding when it's really important to ensure that you know your body better than your physician. And you make sure that you get those routine screenings and that follow-up with your doctor that you need, not ignoring signs and symptoms of anything. So, you know, in today's world, in today's medical world, we can take care of things well before they turn into something worse, which is why we say don't take a turn for the worse. So tonight, as I mentioned, from our Hartford Market, we have with us a colorectal surgeon, a female colorectal surgeon, with them, which I'm really excited about. Her name is Dr. Amanda Ayers. She is from um, a practice out in Hartford, and they are, and I want to make sure I get it right, colon and rectal surgeons of Greater Hartford. Hi, Doc. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited you can join us tonight. Thank you, thank you so much. Did you get our information so you could do your Facebook post too? I I did, yes. Oh, that's great. That's great. So we, as we tell our audience, we tape this, and so we're able to put it on podcast, so we will be able to give it to you so you can share it with the Hartford Market. So we're really excited to be able to collaborate with you and your group. We're very excited to be able to hopefully submit get it get any information out there and uh, make sure everybody knows risks and how to get screened and it's so important, you know, and now yeah. that we've now that we've grown too as a region and, you know, we, we are part of Trinity Health of New England, the sister hospitals, one of the great things about being able to do the radio show now is meeting physicians like yourself and, you know, our reach with WATR is broad. So, you know, our listening audience has been more local, but now with the podcast, we reach so many more people. So we feel like we're able to touch so many more people with um, greater messages. So having you part of that also tonight is really great for us so again thank you for taking the time yeah so you are a colorectal surgeon and your bio is very impressive so just if you would indulge me for a second so you did your undergrad at john hopkins in neuroscience and then local you went from medical school, University of Connecticut, and did your residency there. And then you did a fellowship, very impressive, at Cornell in New York. Yes, so I actually spent half of my time at Cornell at New York Presbyterian and half at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. That's an incredible resume. And you bring it back to Connecticut with all that you've learned. But what I have to ask you is, why colorectal surgery? (laughs) Why that? Yes, I get asked that a lot, Do you? <laughs> and, uh, as, as one can imagine. Um, to be honest, um, the biggest reason is I had amazing mentors during my mm-hmm. training who were fantastic colorectal surgeons and um, were models of the kind of doctors that I, the kind of doctor that I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a big part of it. Um, I personally have a strong family history of colon cancer, so um, 
looking to uh, kind of ensure that we, I, I could help people um, prevent colon cancer and treat it. Um, my grandfather died of um, colon cancer in his early 50s wow. at a time where we didn't really have um, chemo and treatment for metastatic disease. So. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's another big push. And then I, I get to do a lot of different things. So in my job, I get to do colonoscopy. I do big surgery. I do office-based procedures. Um, so it's um, really great, though. You know, especially, I have to be honest with you, you know, being a woman, we're, we're really big, um, especially in the greater Waterbury area. We started this spirit of women that we've become part of. I know you and I talked about it. But we have a yeah. lot of women that come to our events and to our programs. And they are really are, some of them are out there seeking female providers. So, you know, surgeons, other than my, the breast surgeons that we have in our local area, it's not super common to have a female general surgeon or a female colorectal surgeon. So yeah. it's pretty cool to have it in our network and in our market. I'm really excited about that, you know, especially for women to hear this and bring, you know, attention to it in, in our programming. You know, women sometimes want to see another woman. Yep, and I think particularly with a lot of the things I treat, particularly anal rectal disorders like hemorrhoids, um, incontinence, mm. um, things that can be embarrassing to talk about, um, I find that um, women and, and sometimes men are more comfortable having that conversation with me than, um, you know, as a woman. Right. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. No. And I think having the opportunity to pick and choose and not always feel like status quo, that there is other options out there. I, I'm real excited about it. So I, I give you kudos. I think that it's definitely a tough field to go into, too, because it's very male dominated. Did you find it hard when you went to medical school? Um, I. I really didn't. I was very fortunate. Um, so I'm very fortunate now to work with a group of male doctors who um, were all colleagues. And right. I really think, just think of me as um, one of the guys isn't really the right terminology. <laughs> but um, One of the team. Uh, one, of the, one of the people. Right. And uh, I was very fortunate in my residency. We had a lot of female residents. And so it was just... Um, uh, it's definitely we, changing. We supported each other. So it didn't really feel like I was... Right. Um, yeah, out, you know, out there by myself. So I was I was very lucky. I think, yeah. you know, there have been many women surgeons um, well before you that paved some pathway. And so I think it's op- definitely opened the door. I know I love our three female breast surgeons here in the greater Waterbury area, part of Trinity. And they, they're incredible. And I do believe yes. that they, you know, they have definitely had to pave the way a bit. And, you know, I think it's true. I think that, you know, the more as time goes on, you will see more and more female surgeons. Absolutely. Yep. And, and I'm very lucky that, to have those people who went before us and paved the way. And, and paved the way. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I hate to yep. use the thing, break the glass <laughs> ceiling, but they did do that, which is great. Yeah. So tonight, you know, as you and I talked, um, we talked a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the topic, don't take a turn, a turn for the worse, and kind of applying it to colorectal um, and not just colorectal cancer, but other things. But I know one of the things that was really important to you, and I want to make sure that we start start with it because I think it meant a lot to you and I think we should definitely put it out there first because I think it sets the template. We talked a bit about the new American Cancer Society guidelines for for colorectal cancer screening and colonoscopies. So maybe we talk a bit about that. Sure, yeah. So for many, many years, um, the recommended initiation for screening was at age 50. 
And that's for kind of what we call the average risk patient. So that means they do not have a family history of a first-degree relative, so a parent, a brother, sister, with either colon cancer or colon polyps. Mm -hmm. Or the patient themselves does not have a history of some... um, so, for example, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or several other um, things that puts them at an increased risk. More recently, it has been noted that there is an increased rise of younger patients with colon cancer hmm. that is not related to a genetic predisposition. So, not somebody who has a very strong family history, but somebody who just out of the blue got colon cancer. Hmm. And so, for that reason, last year, the American Cancer Society changed their recommendation to initiate um, screening for average risk patients at the age of 45. Wow. That's significant. I know I yeah. know. many moons ago, we played with the uh, age recommendations for mammographies for mm-hmm. women based on family history, based on, and up and down, and they tried to make it every year at 40, but we never got, we never got the insurance companies on board. So is it accepted by the insurance companies at age 45 for average risk? Um, I think it is, it's on a case by case. I mean, I Mm -hmm. I think I can't speak to every insurance company, but, um, with that new recommendation, um, we have not had a ton of trouble getting approvals for that. Why do you think there's been an increase with no genetic predisposition? There's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of theories, um, you know, is diet or environmental toxins, um, the way we eat. Um, There's a Mm -hmm. lot of different things that we just don't, we don't know. Um, so, um, I don't know that there's one thing and there's not something, there's never been really anything clearly out there that we can say, if you do this or avoid this, you're definitely going to avoid right. colon cancer. Right. Absolutely. Um, unlike the relationship of, for example, smoking to lung cancer. Right. Um, so, um, it's, it's, you know, maintaining a healthy lifestyle. Smoking is a risk factor. Um, those are things patients can do to reduce their risk, but, um, some of it is just, um, bad luck. Yeah. And, and, you know, we look at that dietary component and our lives are so different than I would think our, you know, what my parents were and, and their mm-hmm. parents, especially, you know, because of the way we work and how we try to be healthy. We try to eat healthy, but we just, we're mm-hmm. lacking because we're just rushing. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I would assume that diet plays a huge role in this. Um, it, it could. We just don't have, I think, enough information right. to definitively, you know, point to specific dietary things at right. this time. But I'm sure we will know more in the next, you know, five to ten Absolutely. years. Absolutely. As we start to yeah. look at these, right? The more you do younger and the more you're, you're seeing, the more information you're going to get. Exactly. So let's talk a bit about the colonoscopy because what I think is really cool, too, about your group, because I've done some reading a bit on your group. So you're col- colon and rectal surgeons of Greater Hartford, but you guys do the colonoscopies, too. We do. Um, it, it is a part of our practice um, to do screening or surveillance, what we call surveillance or follow-up colonoscopies for polyps or things like that, right. um, as well as surgery. Yeah. So what generally, let's go through the process because it's very, it, you know, I think people are just so afraid to get it. They're so afraid to get the colon. They just don't want to do the prep. They don't, they really yeah. don't, you know. So let's talk a bit about that, what they can expect. Okay, so um, a lot of, you know, the prep is usually the biggest stumbling block for a lot of people (laughs) because 
they know, oh, you know, we have to drink all that stuff. And, and it, the preps are never going to be pleasant. Right. Unfortunately, in order to do a colonoscopy and get a good view of the inside or the lining of the colon, it has to be cleaned out. Mm. The good news is that the prep, um, the types of prep have really changed over the last 10 years. Okay. So previously... We used to use um, a big gallon jug that you had to drink kind of <laughs> Go all night lightly. Long. I remember Go that. Go lightly, <laughs> yep, and get flushed out. We have much um, newer, lower-volume preps okay. that are prescription-based that are lower-volume, so you don't have to drink a whole gallon. Mm-hmm. Um, and d- the volume depends a little bit on which specific prep. Um, and we also do what's called split dosing, which means that you do half of the dose the night before, usually between 5 o'clock and 9 o'clock, and the second dose is the, done the morning of the procedure, so usually about six hours before the procedure. Mm. So a lot of people think, um, don't like the inconvenience, you know, if your colonoscopy is at 7.30 in the morning, you got to get up in the middle of the night, but the benefits are big in that um, patients tolerate the preps much better because you don't have to drink as much at one time. Right. And the quality of the preps are much, much, much better. And the actual volume you have to drink is overall much less than it was before. And I think the patients are probably clear, cleared out better before the exam. They definitely are. The quality right? of the preps are much better, yes. You know, because yep. because when you're doing it all day, then if you're sleeping all night, your body, even though you're really not eating anything, your body has an it's, opportunity to produce more stools so your colon can get filled back up. Correct. Yep. So, you know, I, I hear that those those nightmares. And so, you know, that it doesn't sound as nobody wants scary. to come in and have no. done a prep and then no. find out that their prep was not adequate and <laughs> have to repeat it. That's and do the worst it again. thing in the world. That's the worst. Yeah. Is there any <laughs> contraindications... Um, for someone to have a colonoscopy. So there are there any patients that you would be more le- I know the younger the older rather and the and a little more frail but are there yep. any patients with other comorbidities that you're concerned about when you do a yeah. colonoscopy? So when we do we we do colonoscopy for a couple different reasons. So one is screening, which mm-hmm. means that you have no symptoms, you don't have any problems, you're not, you don't have any bleeding, everything is normal, it's just we're doing a colonoscopy to look for polyps that could grow into cancer. Mm. The other reason is to do it for diagnostic purposes. So somebody comes in and is bleeding, and we need to figure out why, mm. um, or has weight loss, or um, is having abdominal pain. Mm. Um, there are very few patients that don't, quote, qualify for a colonoscopy, okay. but there's many patients that we don't screen. Okay. So patients with with pretty significant, for example, heart or lung disease, who it's probably not safe to have sedation for the colonoscopy. Mm-hmm. Um, those would be people that we would probably exclude. Mm-hmm. Other than that, um, you know, we need to be aware of patients' medical problems. Um, right. So, for example, certain of the bowel preparations can't be used if you have significant kidney disease. Okay. Um, but other than that, there's there's not many. Any contract. So there's no yeah. excuses, you're telling me. <laughs> Now That's it's right. all over the all over the TV for commercials, and it's all over Facebook with the color guard. Yeah, can you like speak to that and maybe yeah. educate us on when, if, when, and when not? Okay, so um, so. um, We think that colonoscopy is the best test to screen for the colon because not only um, do we look for polyps or growths, but we can actually remove them at the time. Mm -hmm. So not only are we diagnosing it, but we can actually reduce risk by removing polyps. The other tests that are done are simply... 
men to look for depending on, like, for example, the Cologuard looks for certain DNA okay. um, or other tests that look for blood in the stool. And so, um, the, to be honest, the best test is the one that gets done, right? right? So if somebody feels really uncomfortable about having a colonoscopy, then, it, then we would much prefer they get some form of screening. And that, and than nothing. Right, than right? nothing. Yeah. The Cologuard is a, is a proprietary test. So it's marketed by a company that will send you the kit to your house. They send you the whole thing to collect a stool sample and, um, um, and then send it back to the company where they will then run the test and look for specific markers that could indicate that there's uh, an advanced polyp or um, a cancer. Okay. So, um, but the concern is what you do with that information. Right. So if that is positive, the recommendation is to then proceed with a colonoscopy anyway, to, to make a diagnosis. Correct. To make a diagnosis. Now, does that have to be ordered by a physician or can it, someone just get it? The Cologuard does have to be ordered by a physician. Okay. Um, and, but it's all done at home. So that's, you know, you don't have to go into a lab. You don't have to have a blood draw. Right. Um, it goes right to the house. So right. um, that part isn't bad. Um, and it's really only indicated for patients who are average risk. So that means if you've had a colonoscopy before and had a polyp removed, you don't qualify. Okay. Or if you have a family history of colon cancer um, or polyps. So it's qualify. really just for the average risk person. So we've said the word polyp quite a bit. I want to make sure that the general audience understands what is a polyp and when are we worried about them. Sure. So we, um, it's been pretty clearly understood that colon cancer likely develops from a growth in the colon called a polyp um, or an adenoma, so a kind of an abnormality in the lining of the colon. And over the period of time, usually 7 to 10 years, that polyp can then grow larger and then eventually turn into a cancer. Okay. So when we look at a col- when we do a colonoscopy and look inside the colon, we can't always tell what kind of a polyp it is, if it is what we call a precancerous or an adenomatous polyp, or there are other kinds of polyps that occur in the colon which are not, um, are not precancerous. Right. And we can't always tell that just by looking, so we usually remove anything we see that looks abnormal. Right. And but you- those adenomas are the polyps that we go in to remove so that they do not have the potential to become colon cancer. So, you know, in a lot of the cases, going in and doing a colonoscopy, preventatively to make sure there's nothing wrong when you're removing those polyps, you're actually preventing cancer, potentially, right? Yep, yes. So is everybody prone to polyps or polyps more prone in certain groups than others? So definitely a family history. Okay. So we know if you have a family history, if you have a first-degree relative who has polyps, Mm -hmm. um, you're at increased risk. Okay. other than, uh, there are certain genetic problems that people can have that increases their risk for polyps, but those would ge- usually be identified at an earlier age. Okay. Um, and um, how about smokers? So smoking definitely increases your risk for colon cancer and right. likely polyps as well. So right. we definitely want to um, screen. Yeah. Yeah, but right now we don't have clear guidelines that if you're a smoker, you get screened more often right. than a non-smoker. But how we know that this, that does increase your risk. How does the screening guide, guidelines change? Say you remove polyps on someone and the polyps are don't prove to be um, precancerous. Do they fall into the 10-year or do they have to come back sooner? Usually, yes, unless there are 
um, certain things like um, if you have multiple, multiple of those or something. But yes, if they are non-adenomatous, then usually they would fall back into a routine ten-year screening. Yeah. And how? And then if they are precancerous, then how does that change things? So it would increase. It, it would simply narrow down the time frame that you go between colonoscopy. So okay. depending on the size and number of polyps and locations, right. um, and their what we call their morphology. So are they flat? Do they look like a mushroom? Um, what did they look like? Um, would alter whether it was a three-year recall or five-year recall, or if you had a really large polyp, it might be six months or a year to be sure that the entire thing came out. When when you find someone that um, has colon cancer and you do the colonoscopy, what indicates when a surgery has to be done? Do you see a blockage? Do you see a mass? Yeah, so the primary first-line treatment for most colon cancers is surgery. Okay. Um, Unless um, we find that it has spread to the liver or the lungs where chemotherapy might be the first line. Mm -hmm. But for most colon cancers, the first-line treatment is surgery. That's a little different for rectal cancer, which gets a little more complicated depending on the location and, and um, additional factors. How, how often do, do you see where you need to intervene and do surgery? Varies a lot depending on, you know, why, um, you know, why you're doing the procedure. Right. So um, we find that about 25-30% of people who are average risk will have precancerous Could polyps. You imagine. <laughs> yeah. But the frequency that we actually find colon cancer depends a little bit on your population. So Do you I can't imagine. I mean, I've not heard until I spoke to you about this 45 the average risk and you know the change now for yeah. to the age 45. Has the American Cancer Society done much out there on that and you know because I really think this is really important to get out there especially myself you know as you know children that are now in their late 30s you know this is something they'll have to think about in a few years and I think it's really important to get that information out there they did there was a big press release last year when the new Mm -hmm. guidelines came out Um, the a lot of the other um, formal recommendations have not changed in the same, have not changed yet. So, for example, the American Gastroenterology Association, you know, Gastroenterology Association, um, the American Society of Colorectal Surgeons does say 45. So, it's a little variable depending on the um, like recommendation body that you look at. Um, but that's why we're trying to get the word out. Well, I really appreciate <laughs> you sharing that information because in all of our Spirit of Women marketing, I'm going to ensure that the team, um, we pull this information up and that it's put in uh, our information, getting it out to women that we're reaching oh. because I think this is huge. I think it's a game changer for saving mm-hmm. lives. Yeah, and the other thing I, I tell patients that it's important to talk about is nobody likes to talk about their colonoscopy right. at a family reunion or <laughs> at Christmas dinner. Yeah, but it's really important that you share your history, particularly with your first degree relatives. So if you're a parent and you had a big polyp, you need to tell your kids because it does change how often and when they start getting screened. When you identify a patient that has colon cancer that you're doing surgery on, do you um, do genetic testing on them too? It depends a little bit on their age right. um, and um, 
um, the location sometimes of the tumor. Right. Um, a lot of times we have worked with our pathologists, so we will often routinely do some basic molecular testing, it's called. So we actually look at the tumor and look at some markers that can be an indicator of a genetic abnormality. Uh-huh. Um, for certain people, it is important to get that genetic testing done prior to surgery because it can alter right. the surgery that we do. Right. That, um, you know, there's so much out there on genetic testing and yeah. uh, and all those all those kits that people are getting. And I'm, yeah. I worry so much about that because I think that we're, I understand that people want to know more and more about their ancestry. And, but I do believe yeah. that we should keep that in the hands of the providers. And it's tricky sometimes because there is a lot. There are some mutations out there that we identify that right. this is an abnormality, but we don't know what to do with it. So there's a number of patients I've seen who have had genetic testing, for example, for ovarian cancer or breast cancer, and they have um, one copy of an abnormal gene related to their colon. Ugh. And so we don't really know what to do with that. Right. Um, and so we usually screen people a little earlier, right. and then if they don't have anything, kind of put them back in sort of a higher risk group right. or depending on the abnormality. And there's also these what we call variants of unknown significance, yes. which means uh, that it's abnormal, right. but we don't know what we don't know why. We don't know um, why. Because you don't have last, a grouping for it yet. Exactly. Right. And then the last thing is that there are gene there are family relationships that we don't um, that there's probably a genetic component that we don't know yet. Wow. So it's important to do, but it doesn't answer all of our questions. So if we bring it back to colonoscopy, what's your biggest recommendation? Um, get it done. Get it done. <laughs> get it done. And the other thing I'll say is that most places in Connecticut do it, um, will do your colonoscopy with a sedation administered by a nurse anesthetist or an anesthesiologist using a medication called propofol, right. which is the nice part about it. So you are asleep. It's a twilight sleep, we call it, but you're completely unaware of what's going on. And once the medication is not, once we stop infusing it, people tend to wake up pretty quickly and have less of that kind of overall groggy feeling for the remainder of the day. How long? does the procedure usually take? Um, usually about a half hour to 45 minutes. It depends a little bit on the difficulty and whether there's polyps that have to be removed. Right. Yeah. So believe it or not, we're at the halfway point already. It goes oh really quickly. Yeah. It does. So we're going to take a two minute break and we're going to come back. And I want to talk about a couple of categories, that things that you had brought up to me with fecal incontinence and hemorrhoids. Okay. We'll be right back. Can't wait. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. It's Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England. Welcome back to Medically Speaking. And we are medically speaking tonight on the topic we've been we've had all month long called Don't Take a Turn for the Worse. And we are ta- speaking tonight with Dr. Amanda Ayers, and she is a colorectal surgeon with colon and rectal surgeons of Greater Hartford. Um, before, I don't want to forget to say this, their website is crsgh.com, and their phone number is 860 860- 242-8591. And again, this is Dr. Amanda Ayers. Hi, Doc. Hi. Did you enjoy our jazz music? I did. So that is a local guy, Vinny Angala. He's from he's from Prospect, right right here close to Waterbury. Wow. Yeah, he's good, amazing. Actually. So there's good music yeah. west of the river, I'm telling you. <laughs> My son-in-law, who's from East Hartford, always said to me, there's nothing good west of the river. I said, you met my daughter. Yeah, right. There has to be some good stuff west of the river. Well, I grew up east of the river. You grew up east of the river, too? 
Yes, as did my husband. We're we're oh. east of the river people. But so. look at you're on a radio show <laughs> west of the river. That's true. It's true. <laughs> we brave we braved across the river on occasion. You good know? job. So. I'm gonna get you down here. We got some good Italian down here. Mm. I'm I'll I'll come get you sooner or later. We're gonna get you down here. <laughs> So we're talking tonight again about don't take a turn for the worse. And we started tonight out um, talking about colonoscopy. And, and I really, I knew that meant a lot to you. And I wanted to make sure we did a good portion of the show. So I want to make sure that we've touched everything you wanted to touch on that. We didn't miss anything. I don't think so. I think get it done. Get it done earlier than it used to be. And mm-hmm. it's not as bad as it used to be. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. So I know also you perform a lot of your surgeries at St. Francis, which is how I found you because St. Francis is one of our Trinity hospitals. So you're also part of our um, con- your, our whole ACO, which we're really excited about. So again, thank you for taking the time to be on with us tonight. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. <laughs> so we talked a bit about, and I know it's not, and we said it earlier in the show, you know, when we talk about incontinence, you know, there's definitely commercials out there for people that have urinary incontinence, but you don't see a lot about fecal incontinence, and it's really embarrassing. It's it is, really yeah. embarrassing. So yeah. I wanted to talk a bit about that because even if we can just hit one or two people out there that say, you know what, I'm not alone, and there's people out there that take care of this. Yep. I think um, more recently it's become more acceptable, I guess, socially, or um, the, there's some treatments out there for, for urinary incontinence. Um, right. And we do have some treatments for fecal incontinence. And I think a lot of people that I see kind of say, well, I just assumed it was part of getting you know, older. Right. Um, and yeah. it doesn't have to be. Um, there are... There is um, several newer treatments out there that we can provide. Um, and most important is to talk to somebody about the options. Right. Um, not everybody will fit in, but, you know, it is very common that I see women, you know, in their late 50s, 60s, early 70s who had kids, you know, in their 20s mm-hmm. and are now having symptoms of lack of control. And it doesn't have to be necessarily... Um, having stool accidents like at the grocery store can even be when I have to go, I have to rush to the bathroom. So I can't leave my house in the morning until I have, you know, until I go to the bathroom. So my day is totally revolving around when I can go to the bathroom so I don't have a problem when I'm out. What causes that? So usually um, there's a lot, it's usually what we call multifactorial, which means that there's a bunch of things. So sometimes it has to do with the character and quality of stool. So people who have irritable bowel or colitis may have looser stool, which can be harder to hold in. in. Um, There is often a component to some nerve damage. So um, a prolonged labor, um, patients who had what we call instrumented delivery, so forceps or things like that, are prone to having injuries to those nerves that go to what we call the perineum, which is the kind of the anal canal um, area that can lead to problems with those nerves kind of transmitting the information of the muscles to squeeze properly. There can be injury to the muscles from either having a baby or from surgeries in the past. Um, um, And um, there are some systemic diseases, so things like sometimes diabetes or other things that can cause nerve and muscle problems so they don't work properly. And for I'm, most I'm people, grateful. It's, I'm grateful I had C-sections now. 
And it doesn't happen for every woman. Right. It's just right. it's a it's something where you know we see we see much 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 later. Um, and for not everybody, can we define exactly what it is? And it's not always important to figure out what it is. It's important to figure out how we're going to take care of it. And so, what are some of those easier treatment options, yeah. or the more options that are out there now? I guess I should say. So the what we call the conservative, so the simple stuff, right, okay. is to really focus on making sure we make the bowel movements as formed and solid as possible. So mm. for some people, that's adding fiber. Mm. For some people, that's using anti-diarrheals, looking at what's perhaps causing the diarrhea, and if we can figure that out. For some people, they just have looser stools, and we can't fix it, right. um, and we have to kind of move on. Um, there is um, specialty physical therapy. So in the same way that if you get your knee replaced, you have to learn how to, like, reuse your knee, there are specialized therapists that can teach patients how to squeeze the muscles around the bottom better in order to hold in bowel movements. And it's not something that you can really do um, on your own because Mm -hmm. if – it's not muscles that you're used to using. So if I ask somebody to kind of squeeze and hold in a bowel movement, invariably patients squeeze their butt cheeks together. Right. Because that's what everybody thinks about. But that's right. not really the muscle we're going for. The muscle we're trying to get squeezed is is not really a voluntary one that takes a while to learn how to train that. Huh. And so a therapist can actually work with patients to show them when they're doing it correctly and when they're not so wow. that they're actually getting the maximum benefit out of their Could therapy. Could you imagine? I mean, I don't... I, that's why this is such great information because I don't think people talk about it and they wouldn't even know that this right. is an option. Yep. And, Absolutely. And does, yeah. does and if those things don't work, do you ever have to go to a surgical intervention or no? This is as far as you can go. No. There, so there's options. Um, the the most recent thing we have out there is something called an interstim device, and it's been used for a long time for urinary incontinence, but in about 2000 and 10 or 11, it was approved for fecal incontinence, and it's a small device that's placed into the back that communicates with the nerve, um, and it um, basically communicates with the nerves and sends a little electrical signal to make the muscle and nerve squeeze a little bit better. We don't fully understand how it works, except we know that it works wow. super well, and um, we do a test phase to make sure that it works for a patient, and the data says that about 40% of people will go back to being completely continent. Wow. And about 80% of people will notice that they reduce their symptoms by at least half. What, are, what is the common age group that you see in this? I would say like 60 to 80, wow. but I've seen all over the place. I mean, I've seen 40-year-olds. Wow. Yep. And w- would a 40-year-old ba- be based on someone that's had multiple deliveries or, you know, just, or just bad luck? can be a number of things. So definitely um, a delivery, perhaps they had a really large baby that was unexpected or an emergency delivery and there was a big tear. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. It, it's so interesting to me that, you know, this is something that isn't really talked about much and to be able to bring it to the public, I think is a really big yeah. deal. But these interstim devices, that's really interesting. Is there it, a, a time when you... For the interstim device, I mean, does it last something someone gets and it stays with them or? Correct. Yeah. Forever. So after we do the test phase, everything, the whole device is basically implanted under the skin. Yeah. Um, similar to how a pacemaker is, um, but it's just kind of on the lower half of your body. Um, and it stays, it has to be in place for it to be working. Um, 
and you get a little device that kind of looks like a cell phone to control it. Um, it's very <laughs> techy. Um, wow. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. And then um, at times we do have to go in and replace the generator or the battery, depending on how much it's being used or how much stimulation a patient needs. And usually they get at least some three. I've seen as little as three and a half, as long as, I mean, I've had somebody who's had it seven, eight years now. Wow. Without having to have it exchanged. So. Wow, that's really interesting. I mean, pacemakers, we do replace, we do replace the batteries right. and things. Yep. So, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. So, so it, we, it's, it, the, the common, when it works well for a patient, the comment is that they feel like they've had, gotten their life back because oh, they can so do awesome. things. Yep. That's so awesome. And, you know, I mean, whatever's going to give you the best quality is what you should do Correct. and what works for you because something like this may not work for everyone. It may not. It may not, but um, when it works, it works really well. Wow. So yeah. we also talked in the beginning, you know, I know hemorrhoids are one of the things that you guys see and treat a lot. So let's right. talk a little bit about hemorrhoid and some of the things that what a hemorrhoid actually is sure. and what you can do non-surgically and surgically and especially new surgical techniques to, to take care of that. Yeah. So the first thing I would always say is that just because it hurts and it's on your bottom doesn't mean it's a hemorrhoid. <laughs> so there are a lot of there's a lot of things that can happen in kind of the anal anal rectal region that are not hemorrhoids. So for example, something like a fissure or an abscess. So it's important that if you're having symptoms like pain or discomfort or bleeding to come see somebody because assuming that it's a hemorrhoid, I mean I see lots of people who say, "Oh, I thought it was a hemorrhoid, so I've been get, you know, using topical stuff for 6 months and meanwhile, it's something we could have fixed wow. um, or helped with. Um, hemorrhoids themselves, are everybody's got them. All right? mm -hmm. Everybody in the world has hemorrhoids. They're a natural part of everyone's anatomy, but we treat them when they become bothersome or symptomatic. And usually symptoms would be things like bleeding, itching, protrusion, so things that are kind of like popping out when you go to the bathroom, mm -hmm. sometimes mucus discharge, um, all gross things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and they're simply a collection of blood vessels. So things that can predispose patients to them are just sometimes genetic. So sometimes we see patients who their whole family has hemorrhoid problems, and it's wow. probably just how they're made. Um, chronic straining and time spent on the toilet, even if you're not pushing, just sitting on the toilet will actually increase the risk for hemorrhoids because it puts a lot of pressure on that area. Wow. Um, pregnancy, so anything that increases the mm. blood flow and pressure to the pelvic region. Mm. So, for example, hemorrhoids. Sometimes weightlifters are um, often, um, um, this is often a problem in weightlifters because they're doing a lot of squats and putting a lot of pressure on that right. area. Right. And yeah. they're pain, they get painful and uncomfortable. So that's when people yep. tend to seek you out. Correct. But sometimes they can be living with not painful, but just bleeding or protrusion or right. mucus for a long time before they actually are that bothersome. And that, a lot of people try to use those topical things. Yep. And the topical agents are okay for symptom relief, but they will not prevent or cure hemorrhoids. So once you have a hemorrhoid that's protruding, yeah. it's not going to get better. Um, depending on why it's protruding, so there's a lot of different, you know, if you have something called a thrombosed hemorrhoid where you get a blood clot in a hemorrhoid, those are something we can treat that may get better. Okay. But once they're bad enough that if they're inside and they're coming out, a lot of times um, they aren't going to get better on your own, on their own. So let's talk about yeah. what you do to fix them. Sure. So 
Everybody has heard about the classic hemorrhoid surgery, which is always awful, and it's very painful. And it's true that that that's kind of like traditional hemorrhoid surgery. We go in and take everything out. We try to avoid doing that unless people really, really need that because they have both internal and external hemorrhoids or not candidates for other things. But there are a lot of things we can do in the office. Um, We, um, in our practice, use a treatment technique called rubber band ligation which is tried and true. Um, yes, in terms that's of what treatment. I learned in nursing school. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, there's actually been some reviews because they've looked at things like laser and ultrasound and all these kinds of things. And the, the um, banding has been still the, the um, best option for both protrusion and bleeding. Wow. And we do it right in the office. It takes about six minutes. If that, um, wow. it is associated with some very mild discomfort, um, and it only treats internal hemorrhoids. Okay. Um, but, and sometimes requires more than one visit to deal with all of the hemorrhoids. Right. So we would do one and come back in three, four weeks to do another, um, depending on the size and, and how many people have. Um, but it's usually very well tolerated, associated with some mild discomfort, and it's very, it's a safe procedure um, with low risk, um, and is definitely, for many patients, a better option than surgery, which can need, um, which can lead to like a two to four week recovery if you have surgery. Really? Yeah. So what entails the surgery? So um, we offer two different surgeries. The one is the traditional hemorrhoid surgery where we go in and cut everything out. Mm -hmm. We kind of cut out both the internal and external components and then sew closed the defect. Um, That's usually done under anesthesia as an outpatient. So you come in and have surgery, go home the same day. But it is because we're cutting in the anorectal region, it's really, really painful. Um, It's pretty bad. I mean, I've had patients tell me it's worse than labor. It's worse than kidney stones. It's really uncomfortable. Um, And I say that often, I tell patients, I'm not saying this to scare you, I'm saying it to be, like, this is realistic, you know, the recovery. So, you know, young moms, I say, you know, if you have little kids, you're not taking care of your kids for five or six days, you need help, because you're going to be really uncomfortable and not able to kind of, you know, you're going to be in the bathtub, in the bed, in the bathtub, (laughs) on the couch. Yeah. So, So... once you take care of the hemorrhoids, yeah. what do you do and how do you educate your patients or is there a way for them to prevent them in the future other than not straining or saying? Yep. So we definitely try to make sure patients can, um, that we maximize their bowel habits. So for example, avoiding straining, making sure you're going to the bathroom regularly. And the frequency of that is variable for patients. You know, some people go three times a day, some people go every other day. So it doesn't have to be an everyday thing. Um, as long as you're, as patients are going and it's easy to go, mm-hmm. um, you don't have to strain or push or um, expend a lot of effort to have a bowel movement. Um, so we do try to focus on making sure we correct those things that may have led to the hemorrhoids in the first place. So if you don't do them surgically and you're doing them yeah. in the office, yeah. when, can pa- when can patients go back to their normal activities? Within the hour. Wow. I mean, I have patients who will come over at lunchtime and have a band put on and go right back to work. They can wow. go to the, they, we, don't, we don't give pain medication after it. They can go to the gym. There are no restrictions on diet or activity. They can eat right up to the time they come in. So, What would push, push the person the other way to the surgical removal? Sometimes if patients have, so uh, sometimes patient preference, so if they have a lot of hemorrhoids, and I say, we can ban these, but it's going to take me four or five visits. Right. Some patients prefer, I want to just get this done, one and done, and just 
you know, um, because I've had these forever, I just want to get rid of them. Hmm. Um, Sometimes if patients who have a lot of um, external skin, um, and that's not uncommon in women who've had babies who had a lot of pressure and had a lot of external hemorrhoids during late-stage pregnancy or even with delivery and are left over with excess skin Hmm. um, um, and external hemorrhoids, sometimes they prefer to have those cut out because of trouble cleaning or things like that. Right. Yeah. Do you recommend to a woman that's had hemorrhoids after during pregnancy and after pregnancy to get an evaluation done before they become an issue? Um, depends on the severity. I think, you know, not um, if you had really bad hemorrhoids during delivery and you're planning to have another kid um, or have another pregnancy, it's right. not, you know, especially if we can ban things so that they're maybe not as bad with right. your next pregnancy, um, that may be useful, yeah. Um, sometimes we say if if they're livable and you just you know there's extra skin or whatever we would we would recommend waiting until after you're done having kids. Right. That, so yeah, definitely wait till after you're done having yeah. kids. You know, it's 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 just amazing to me. You know, I think back to nursing school and I think back to the days when we were learning about hemorrhoids, and they didn't talk about the surgery as much. We did. They talked about the banding. Yeah. So I, I is think it different for most patients. I'm sorry. Is it different at all? Has it changed or it's pretty much the same as years past? Um, the banding itself? Yeah, and how it's done. Yeah. Um, it's It hasn't changed a lot in wow. the last, you know, 20 years. Wow. Um, and I will tell you the number of patients I, I banned that say, I cannot believe I did not come in and have this done 10 years ago. <laughs> like, I've been living with these symptoms forever and this was all it took. Oh, my goodness. This is yeah. crazy. So, yeah, that's yeah. It's, it's interesting to me, to me. Like I said to you, that is definitely something that, you know, has been around and it's still tried and true. You don't see that oh, in yeah. all avenues of medicine. That's why it's that, interesting. That's totally true where we have newer options. And I, I do right. have patients that come in and ask about lasers and things like that. And right. They've tried all kinds of fancy gadgets. But to be honest, like when it came down to reviewing everything, the, the banding in the office is still um, a really good option. So the so. so the latest technology that's out there for you and to have your hands on is probably the robotic surgery that Correct. you would use when you do colorectal col, you know colon cancers. Yes. And so you utilize that. How do you see that different for your patients? So um, you know the robotic surgery. Um, we we do most of our surgery laparoscopically, mm-hmm. so we're still going to be doing that. But with the assistance of the robot, we can use a little bit smaller incisions, um, which means there's a little less discomfort, a little quicker recovery. Um, so it's better cosmetically um, for certain things that are way down in the pelvis. So for rectal cancers, the robot may have an advantage where we can see better rather right. than trying to operate almost upside down, where we're trying to mm-hmm. see under like the pubic bone. Um, so in the pelvis, the robot is, is, has clear advantages. So we covered Um, a ton of stuff from colonoscopies all the way down to hemorrhoids. Did we miss anything that you'd like to cover? We have like three minutes. I think we actually got it all. We did, right? I I think think we did. Yeah. So back into the theme, you know, you know, don't wait. Right. Don't wait. Yeah. Get get screened. So what would be your 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 final recommendations to everybody out there and, you know, not taking a turn for the worse? So I think the most important thing is um, don't be embarrassed. Mm -hmm. You know, we we 
you know, I tell my patients all the time, I look at tushes all day long, right? (laughs) That's what I do. Um, It's just like a dentist who looks at teeth, right? So don't be, I understand it's a sensitive and embarrassing area. So we try to do our best to make that as, Mm -hmm. as, you know, non-embarrassing as possible. Um, But definitely seek help because there are a lot of things out there that we can fix or or work on or explain to you what's going on um, so that we're not missing something like you know, a cancer or hemorrhoids that we could treat that you're living with for 10 years. Because I definitely think it is a part of um, our medical care that we sometimes do put, um, and not to make a pun, but kind of on the back burner and (laughs) avoid, um, right, when we can. And then when we have to do it, I think the scary thing is finding that one practitioner that we can connect with and that would make us feel as comfortable as possible. I think that is important that, you know, especially for, for issues in the anorectal region, find somebody that, you know, makes it comfortable and easy for you to, um, you know, to talk to them about your problems. So Dr. Amanda Ayers, she is with Colon and Rectal Surgeons of Greater Hartford. Again, I'm going to give that website out again, crsgh.com. Their phone number is 860 Nine one, and you see patients for colonoscopy for treatment of polyps, fecal incontinence, hemorrhoids, any any rectal issues that someone would have, or any um, abnormalities that someone may feel needs to be warranted by a colorectal surgeon. Yes. That's what I do. That's what you do. <laughs> That's what you do, and you do it best, and you do it west east of the river because you're in Hartford. East of the river. Well, east of the river because you're kind of Hartford, yes. right? Yes, yes. It's Hartford. Yes. The greater Hartford area. Where are your offices? Um, so we have an office in Bloomfield, South Windsor, and one of my partners sees some patients in Plainville. In Pl- oh, so that's close to this side, yep. to this side of the world. So we also told you that we're going to start getting you involved in our Spirit of Women programs up there. So I'm going to hold everybody to that. I would to make love sure, that. To make sure yeah. we get you out there. So I want to just tell you again, thank you, Doc, so much for joining us tonight. Dr. Amanda Ayers, have a great night. Thank you so much, Doc. Thanks so much. Have a good night. Thank you. All right. So that is our... Finishing up our topic, don't take a turn for the worse. Um, we are going to be focusing next month a bit on supplements, um, talking about when they're when they're appropriate, when they're not appropriate, what's good out there, what you should be taking them with. We're also going to have representation from the various markets. So we'll definitely have someone on here from Springfield, from Waterbury, and from Hartford. Um, We're very excited about it. I'm going to have a primary care physician here from Waterbury. We will have an OBGYN from the Springfield market, and I will have an integrative medicine specialist from the Hartford market. So thank you so much for joining me tonight. Have a great weekend. Robinson. Take care.